take your Bibles this morning, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse number 13. Be rounding out the second chapter here of our series in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse number 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who, were, who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we come to the Gospel of John. One of the interesting things about this account of Jesus cleansing the temple uh, is that John puts it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He puts it toward the beginning of his gospel and not toward uh, the end the other Gospels, remember we call those the synoptic Gospels, they all put this event occurring uh, at the end of the Gospel. And because of that, people have, have questioned, uh, did, did John do this on purpose? Uh, maybe Jesus cleansed the temple more than one time. Maybe he did it once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. Uh, but if you remember what we've said about the Gospel of John, that there is an arrangement to the accounts that he gives. There's a, there's a particular and a specific kind of choosing. Uh, there's an editing process that he has gone through to give us the miracles and the signs and the specific teaching that he gives. And there, there's a lot of structure to his gospel. Uh, I think when we take that into account, we should recognize there probably was only one cleansing of the temple. And John has put it at the beginning of his gospel to kind of foreshadow some things that are going to come as he works his way through the gospel and not that there are, are two uh, gospels. This event probably did occur near the very end of his Ministry And John is putting it here to, to show us and, and to teach us some things about what he's going to be showing us through, throughout uh, the gospel. He's showing us here really the emptiness and the vanity of the religion of the people of that day. We, we kind of saw that already in uh, the, the miracle of turning water into wine. One of the things that that kind of symbolically showed uh, what was the fact that there was no joy. The people in that time did not understand. They had not experienced the forgiveness of God and the joy that comes with that. There was an emptiness and a, a vanity to their religion. And, and I think that's what's going on here as well. 
Jesus is, is demonstrating that this place that is supposed to be uh, the place for the worship of God, uh, things are happening there, but it's not genuine worship. We're going to see three things that Jesus is doing by, by cleansing the temple here. Uh, first of all, we see that Jesus is exposing the vanity of God-forsaken worship. He's exposing the vanity of God-forsaken worship. That by driving these people out from the temple, Jesus is showing that their worship was really devoid of true meaning. God was not pleased with their worship. He was not pleased with what was happening in this temple, and therefore he had forsaken it. In a few minutes, we'll look at some of the particulars of what he does and what he says, but first, I want us just to simply step back and see this action as really a broad statement on the condition of their religion. I think, I think we could miss that and just jumping right into all the particulars of what he did and just see this act is a statement of God upon the condition of their worship. Let's not miss the irony of, of what is happening here. Remember, John chapter 1 has made it explicitly clear that, that Jesus is the Word who is the, the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so God shows up to this place that is designated, the one place on earth, earth that has been specially designated for His worship. And He comes during one of the most sacred times on their yearly calendar when they when they remembered the their, the act of God and delivering them out of slavery in Egypt and, and when God shows up to his temple in this most sacred of all times he finds activity occurring there that is anything and everything but true worship the people think that they are worshiping. They, are, they wholeheartedly believe themselves to be engaged in the worship of Almighty God. But when God showed up, He demonstrated by this act an, an unmistakable reality that He was not pleased with what was happening there. The rituals and rites that they were taking part in, they might have had sentimental value to the people. This holiday that they were observing, the, the Passover, it, it might have given them a sense of celebration as holidays often give people. This might have been a, a time of great joy and merriment for the people, but it was not an act that God delighted in. It, it was not an act of worship when God shows up that he says, yes, I, this is pleasing to me. In fact, it's the exact opposite. H how could this be? Well, when we contemplate what is happening here, we need to recognize some things that God has already been telling his people through the prophets from long, long ago. And, and the first is this, that religion devoid of obedience is devoid of God's blessing. Religion that is devoid of obedience is also devoid of God's blessing. You know, we as human beings, uh, we have uh, a tendency sometimes to uh, to invest inherent power, mystical power almost, in, in religious things. Uh, we, we give a, sacred, a sense of sacredness to them, buildings and, and rituals, sometimes pictures or certain locations. We talked about this when we went through our series on the Ten Commandments. And, and of course, one of the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments uh, is that we not make any physical object 
that, that we use to, to worship God. And the reason God doesn't want us to do that is often because we, we take those objects and we invest in those objects a, a sense of power, a, a, a mystical sort of power that, that we can kind of manipulate God into giving us what we want if we only pray with this Bible, or, or if we only go to this building where God did some kind of work in, in our heart. And, and so we kind of invest uh, a, a mystical power there, and we think we can manipulate God into blessing us, like God is a, a good luck charm or, or something like that. Historically, professing Christians have, have sometimes done this with relics and pictures, sometimes People have even thought about the Lord's Supper in church history in that way. It's kind of you could get God's grace automatically without faith or apart from faith just simply by taking it. You know, if the priest turns this into the body and blood of Christ and then I ingest it, I, I get God's grace automatically through that. The Jewish people had done this with the temple. They felt like the temple and the religious rituals that they did in the temple, the sacrifices and so forth, automatically secured God's blessing for them. They could kind of live however they wanted to, to live. They didn't need to worry about obeying God or doing what God had commanded them. But then they could come to the temple and, and they could do the things that God told them to do in the temple and then everything would be all right. They would have God's blessing on their life. But what we need to recognize is that, that God did promised to bless the people, but it was if they would be devoted to Him alone and if they would keep His law and if they would walk with Him faithfully. If they did that, then indeed the, the, the worship that occurred at the temple would be met with God's presence and with the outpouring of His blessing. But they could not presume upon the, the fact that all the while they're living sinfully, they can just show up at the temple and automatically get God's blessing because God has given this temple to them. The temple was not given as a good luck charm. That's the message that we actually find several places in the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah 7 verse 1 says this. We'll read this kind of a long section here, but, but it gives the, uh, the idea here. The words of Jeremiah... Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this, there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter in these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Jeremiah was prophesying during a time in which God was bringing judgment on Judah and the people were being exiled. Uh, they're they're going to be defeated by the Babylonians. And, and so Jeremiah is giving them this message and he calls them to repentance. Amend your ways. If you will repent, if you will, if you will turn away from the things that you have been doing, the sins that you have been committing, the way that you have, have, have forsaken my law, if you will amend your ways, then you will get to stay in this place. I will not send you into exile. And then he says this, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. He repeats it three times. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. And in the land that I gave to your fathers forever, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, making offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. We're in the temple. We're worshiping God. We can come into the temple and anytime we want to, we can just secure God's blessing and and God will hear our prayers and, and He will do what we want Him to do because He's given us the temple of the Lord. It's like a good luck charm. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've disobeyed God, no matter how you've rebelled at Him, just show up at the temple and everything will be all right. God will bless you. He said to them, those are deceptive words. Don't believe that, Jeremiah is saying. What you need to do if you want God's blessing is to amend your ways. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn away from all of these ways that you have been breaking God's law And you need to be obedient to him. And if you do that, then you will have God's blessing. But don't presume to have God's blessing simply because you show up at the temple to worship God. A religion devoid of obedience is devoid of God's blessing, no matter what kind of rituals you have. Secondly, we see that if God is not pleased, he's not present. If God is not pleased, he's not present Isaiah gave a similar message to the message of Jeremiah in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 13 he says bring no more vain offerings God had commanded them to bring offerings but now Isaiah the prophet is standing in this time of God's judgment he's saying I don't want you to bring any more vain offerings Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, those are things that God instituted in His Word. and, And the calling of convocations. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You're gathering together in the temple. You're observing these rituals and these rites, but you have allowed iniquity in your heart. And it's unrepentant. He says, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates they have become a burden to me. I'm, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to the Lord, I will hide my eyes from you. He says, and even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of widows. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. Do you see what God says here? He says, as long as you are harboring disobedience, 
As long as you are refusing to repent and turn from your evil, when you come into my house and you raise your hands to the Lord and everybody around you thinks that you're worshiping God, God's saying, I'm going to hide my eyes from that. I'm not looking at that because I cannot bear to have solemn assembly and iniquity all at the same time. And when you pray to me and when you cry out and ask for, for me to bless you, when you're, when you're bringing these petitions before me, I will not listen to your prayer. If God is not pleased, He is not present. Some things never change. The problem that had plagued the people in the Old Testament is still an issue in Jesus' day. It's evident in the Gospel of John, even hundreds of years after Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, that the Jewish leaders had not responded to this invitation. He said, amend your ways. He called them to repentance. If you come and you repent, I'll wash your sins away. He, he made that offer to them. But even hundreds of years later, the Jewish leaders had not responded to that invitation. They persisted in their sin. And as a result, their worship had been utterly forsaken by God. In, in the other gospel accounts, that passage that we read in Jeremiah chapter 7, it's actually quoted uh, by Jesus in the other gospel accounts when he cleanses the temple. Remember, he says in Jeremiah 7, 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And when Jesus quotes Jeremiah, what he's indicating to them is the problem that's been a problem since the days of Jeremiah hundreds of years ago it's still a problem. You, you are still harboring your iniquity in your heart. You're, you're still persisting in your sin, going, going about breaking God's law, breaking His commandments, and then showing up in the temple. And all you're doing by doing that is, is making this the congregation uh, of a bunch of thieves and robbers. Just like Jeremiah's day, the very temple of God, the place which should have been holy, a, a place to come and seek forgiveness of sins, had become the central gathering place for people to commit their sin. It was a den of robbers. And, and in Jesus' day, they're actually literally bringing their sin into the temple. And so Jesus holds a little demonstration here for them. Like some of the prophets in, in the Old Testament, he, he gives them an object lesson. And he shows up and he drives them by force out of the temple. This act of Jesus is a, a demonstration of the same prophetic message given by Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets in the Old Testament. Through this act, Jesus exposed that their religion was in vain. It was futile. It was dead. If God is not pleased, he is not present. As we apply that this morning, I think what we need to recognize is that, that it is possible for us to participate in dead religion that's devoid of God's presence and of his blessing. When, when you readied yourself to come to church this morning, did it even cross your mind? Did you even stop to ask yourself, is God going to be present there? Is God going to be pleased by what we do as we enter into worship? Is our worship true worship? If Christ showed up to Union Baptist Church this morning, when we're gathered together, would He be pleased or would He be more prone to, to drive us out? The letters of 
uh, to the churches that are written in the book of Revelation, which actually is written by the Apostle John, who, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John as well. It shows us really, those letters to those churches show us that this is not just an old covenant problem. In fact, listen to Revelation 3.15. This is Jesus speaking to his churches in the book of Revelation. And he says, I know your works. Revelation 3.15. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Just as Jesus drove these people out of the temple. He's saying, I, 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 if you don't amend your ways, if you don't repent of this sin, this lukewarmness, then I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 2, 4 and 5 gives us a similar picture. Jesus says to that church, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place until you repent. That picture of removing your lampstand and God is saying I'm going to remove my presence remember if God is not pleased he is not present and though, so he's threatening this church you are persisting in this sin you have abandoned your love for Christ you have run away from Christ you've abandoned it and and if you don't remedy this problem if there is not repentance then I will remove your lampstand I'm not going to be present in your gathering Jesus was warning his churches that if they persisted in sin and in abandoning him, then he would remove his presence for them. See, just like the Old Covenant people, the Old Testament people, we, we can assume that we're here singing Amazing Grace and we're putting money in the offering plates and we're shaking hands and fellowshipping and somebody's opening the Bible and we're listening to a sermon and we can assume wrongly sometimes that all of that is pleasing to God and, and that God is present with us and that He is pleased by our worship. We need to be careful that like these people, we do not presume upon God's presence and on His blessing. Secondly, Jesus is displaying God's anger over desecrated worship. So let's think more fully and more deeply about what's going on here. For us to grasp the meaning of what Jesus is doing, and this display of, of righteous anger, we need to see the precise nature of their sin. What was the specific sin that drew the ire of Jesus? Well, we see, first of all, the problem. And the problem is this. Their worship was defiled by their covetousness. Their worship had been defiled by their covetousness. We might be tempted to think that Jesus was just angry about the animals. Can you believe that someone would bring barnyard animals into the temple of God. Now, this was the, the outer court. It was the court of the Gentiles. It was really where the Gentiles were allowed to come and, and worship God. Uh, and, and so this is sort of the outer court, but it's all part of the, the, the temple, the premises of, of the temple. And, and here we have people bringing dirty barnyard animals into the temple and we might be tempted to think that that's what Jesus was upset about. Can you believe they would bring stinky animals, animals that, that make messes and, and do what barnyard animals do? And they brought that into the temple. But Jesus really isn't so worried about the physical uncleanness of the barnyard animals as he is about the spiritual uncleanness of the people who brought the animals. 
The, the temple wasn't defiled so much by the unclean animals as it was by the unclean sinful people. What were they doing? What was their sin? What was the, the problem? Well, they were substituting commerce for worship. You see this in, in verse number 16 in, in our text. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. They're substituting commerce for worship. They had taken this place which was dedicated to the worship of Almighty God and they've turned it into a market. Now on the face value, there was at least a plausible explanation of why they would do that. This is the Passover. You, you have literally thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem. They're, they're all coming to offer sacrifices at the temple. Many of them are traveling. In the Old Testament law, there were specific animals that they were to bring for these sacrifices. In addition, there was uh, uh, an offering that they were to give that had to be given in, in a certain currency. It couldn't be given in the Roman currency. And, and so there were money changers who were taking their Roman money and translating that into the money that would have been appropriate for, uh, for the, the offering that they were to give. If you're traveling from some distant place in that time, it would be a lot easier to show up and buy an animal than it would to be to, to travel with an animal. So, so there's a plausible explanation. Hey, we're just here helping these people. We're, we're kind of providing a service that's a, a convenience for them uh, in, in their attempt to worship God. We're just here to facilitate the worship of God. That's, our, that's what we want to do. We want to help be, people be able to come and easily offer the sacrifices that, that God has required of them. But no matter how good it sounded and, and on the service level, this should not have been a place that was dedicated to commerce. This was not a place to come and bring your animals and buy and sell and trade. There are places for that. The, the act of what they do, were doing was not necessarily wrong, but they didn't need to do it in the temple of God. This was a place that had been made holy. This was a place that had been dedicated to the worship of Almighty God. And this was not the kind of stuff that should have been happening. But this was actually just symptomatic of a much bigger problem. The reality is that they really were worshiping. It's just that they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping their idols. Remember what Jeremiah said of the people of his day. He said, you've made the, the house of God, you've made it into a den of robbers. And Jesus quotes that, and he says that's what the problem is. He doesn't quote it in John. It's not cited in John, but in the other Gospels, uh, he, he cites that passage from Jeremiah. And that, that term robber is really like a bandit. This isn't somebody that's kind of stealthy and, and stealing things. This is basically like a, a, like a pirate. This is somebody that goes around and wreaks havoc and, and tries to loot things. And, and that's what he said is happening here. The problem isn't merely that they're doing business in the temple. That was bad enough. That shouldn't have happened. That was a problem, but that wasn't the extent of the problem. The problem was that the religious leaders had set up the perfect racket to explo exploit the common people. They were getting rich off the worship of God. They were, they were, we could say, the health and wealth and prosperity preachers of that day. They sold these sacrificial animals to those who had uh, traveled there. And it doesn't take much imagination, does it, to see how, that, how easily that could be exploited. 
I mean, all you got to do is, is go visit a, a theme park or go, go to a stadium, and you can see once people get you there, they can charge you whatever they want for, for the services, for food, right? They jack up the prices. Uh, likely, this is the kind of thing that, that is happening in the temple. We're getting these people here, and this is big business. We can charge them a little bit more, more than what would really be appropriate for these animals, and we can get rich. We can make a killing off of this. And they were. The groups who were in charge of the worship in the temple were some of the wealthiest people in the land. And no doubt that was in part because they were at the very center of this lucrative business, which was the worship of Yahweh. Do you see a problem? Jesus, elsewhere, he does condemn the religious leaders in Luke 16 for, for their love of money. Luke 16 Verse 13, where Jesus is saying, uh, you cannot serve God and money. You remember Jesus teaching on, on that. We won't read the, everything that he says, but he says, you cannot serve God and money. And Luke records in, in verse 13, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, so the Pharisees heard Jesus teaching about money, about you shouldn't love money, and they loved money. And so they ridiculed Jesus about that. But Jesus says to them, God knows your heart. He knows what's going on. And, and you can look very pious. You can look very religious. You can have that veneer of self-righteousness for everyone to see. But God knows your heart, and he knows that you are full of the love of money. The passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, what do they refer to? What are the, the sins that the people commit? Well, it's really a list. It's just a litany of breaking the Ten Commandments. But, but in both of them, he mentions oppression. It's clear uh, from, from uh, the, what we read in the Gospel of John that, that these people were in a comfortable position. Later on in John chapter 11, verse 48, uh, it, the, they're concerned because people are beginning to follow Jesus. And this is what they say. If we, go on, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You have these people who are religious and they're getting rich off of it. They have a place, a life of luxury. They have a place of comfort. And Jesus is threatening to disrupt that. Jesus is disturbing uh, the, the business model that they have going on. And they're saying, we got to do something or the Romans are going to come and take our place away. We're going to lose this position. And so Jesus is, is exposing that what is happening here is, is really a, 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 an act of covetousness. It's an act of worship, but they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping the almighty dollar. And all of this, they were displaying what they were truly worshiping, which was money. Remember what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. The interesting thing about the religious leaders of that day, like the Pharisees, they were kind of a reform movement. They viewed themselves as 
really righteous. We're the people that we're trying to get everybody to keep God's law. We're, we're trying to be we're trying to be righteous and we're not like the people when you read the stories in the Old Testament we're not like the people who commit idolatry in the Old Testament we've gotten rid of all of our idols we've called people to holiness but in reality it's just like Ezekiel says they hadn't gotten rid of their idols they had just taken their idols in their heart they, they didn't have outward idols for everyone to see but they were still worshiping something other than God they were worshiping material things And so Jesus' response to all of this is righteous anger. It says in verse number 17, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus responds with righteous anger. That, that expression, zeal for your house will consume me, it means, first of all, that Jesus is going to be impassioned re regarding the right worship of God. It's a quote from Psalm 69, and there the, the psalmist is saying, hey, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, and the reason I'm being persecuted and suffering for you is because I've been zealous for your house. Zeal for your house has, has consumed me, and so it's brought the enemies of God uh, against him. And the disciples read that psalm. It says when, when Jesus did this, they, they identified that psalm is about Jesus. Yes, there was a person in the Old Testament who wrote that psalm, and they, they felt like that was descriptive of their situation. But, but God, in writing Scripture, who's the writer of all Scripture, what was giving a, a, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately the one who had zeal for the house of the Lord. This zeal that Jesus had was expressed in forceful yet measured action. Jesus goes and he, he drives them out. He gets a, a rope and, and, and makes a, a whip and he drives these animals out. And we, we could see that it's forceful. This zeal was, was an impassion. It was a response of, of righteous anger against their, their sin. But we also need to recognize that it was measured First of all, his motivation was for the glory of God. Remember, Jesus said of himself, I only do the works that the Father has given me to do, and everything that I do is for the glory of God, for, to bring him glory. And so uh, we just recognize then that this was uh, his motivation. Jesus didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I can't believe this. And he just goes off in a mad rage. That's not what's happening here. He's under control, it's not a, a blind rage. Notice here, he, he, doesn't even, he doesn't harm anyone. He, he doesn't harm any animals, but he does make the point. He, he makes the point that he wants to make. Nothing is permanently lost or, or destroyed. Notice in verse 16, it, it says that, that he told those who were selling the pigeons, take these things out of here. So he's turning over tables and everything, but, but he didn't even set these pigeons loose so that they would fly away. He told those who had the pigeons, take them out of here. He's under control, but the result was what he, what he wanted. He cleansed the temple. He drove out this profaning, this act of profaning God's house. This was a, a symbolic gesture. Uh, really, what Jesus is doing here is prefiguring the judgment. He's, he's showing us a little display of the wrath of God towards sin. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, this is a prophecy about 
John the Baptist and then about Jesus. It says, behold, I send my messenger. That's, that's John, and he will prepare the way before me. We talked about John the Baptist, right? And then notice what it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the company, covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify listen to this he will purify the sons of levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old in the former years. Here he's saying that the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he will suddenly come to his temple. And what is he going to do when he comes to the temple? He's going to refine the worship of his people. He's going to come to the Levites who, who are the, the, the uh, priestly line. And he's going to purify them so, so that the people of God will be able to worship him in sincerity and in truth. Isn't it interesting as we sort of apply this and we see the anger of God, the wrath of God displayed toward his people and the, the profaning of his worship. Isn't it interesting that the, the greatest display of anger that we see in the life and, and ministry of Jesus is displayed toward the center of worship for his people? Does it, doesn't that cause you to stop and think? Just think about the Romans Think about all the wickedness that was going on in the world in that time. And where does Jesus target his wrath and his anger, which was righteous? Right at the heart of the place that should have been worshiping him. Jesus didn't go to Rome and confront Caesar. There, were plenty of, there was plenty of wickedness on the part of Caesar that he could have confronted. But he didn't go to Rome. Jesus doesn't even go to, to protest at Herod's house, at his, at his palace, uh, the sort of local ruler in that area. There was much he could have protested uh, about Herod. Jesus doesn't go to those places. He came to the house of the Lord. And he says, this is where judgment is going to start. This is what I'm concerned about. This is top priority on my list. Jesus' greatest concern was for purifying the worship of Almighty God. And this is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment doesn't begin in Washington, D.C. Judgment doesn't begin with the U.N. Judgment doesn't end or, or begin uh, with, with the great political leaders of the world. Judgment begins in the house of God. Number one priority on his list is to purify his people, to purify his church. Zeal for the house of the Lord will consume him. Listen, when Jesus returns, he will deal with all of the wickedness in our world. He will deal with political leaders. Every person is going to give an account for what they have done. Leaders and nations will give an account for what they have done. But right now, God's concern and what our concern ought to be is with the house of the Lord. Judgment begins with us. God is like, like a refiner's fire. He's refining us. He's dealing with our sin. He's purifying His people. And that's number one priority on His list in the moment and number one priority 
should be on our list as well. Zeal for your house will consume me. But we could say there's another layer to this. Zeal for your house will consume me. The fact means obviously that he's going to be very zealous. He's going to be impassioned for the purity of this worship. But there's another layer. That, that word consume, it, it can mean uh, to be taken over with something. Like you know, we use the same, the same way, right? This is consume me. It means I've given all my time to this or I'm impassioned by this. Okay, but it can also mean that something's devoured. And I think there's a, a sense in which that's kind of what this is saying here. Yes, Jesus was figuratively consumed with passion for the house of the Lord, but he was also literally devoured by this zeal as well. It was the zeal of Jesus to protect the honor of the Lord which led to his crucifixion. In this context of, of the psalm, it is a, a righteous person who is suffering precisely because he has zeal for the Lord. And the same is true for Jesus. Jesus is going to be crucified in large part because of this event. You remember when they, when they arrest Jesus and they bring him to trial, what is it that they bring up? He said he was going to destroy the temple. And three days, he was, he was going to build it up. Of course, you notice in this text, that is not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I'll, I'll, I'll raise it up. He said to them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, we were going to see, he wasn't even talking about the physical temple. But this act, and this is one of the reasons I think this happened toward the end of his ministry, this act brought them anger. They, they were enraged by the fact that, that Jesus had done this. You see this. You know the way people are. You can talk all day long. You can call people out and, and you can say things and you can preach and proclaim. But when you start to mess with their stuff, that's when they get really mad. And that's what I think led ultimately to the crucifixion of Jesus. When he goes into Jerusalem, he's been doing miracles and he's been, he's been preaching against their hypocrisy. But when he goes into the temple, this, we're in charge of this temple. And, and he messes with their business model, so to speak. That's when the anger comes. And that's what they bring up at the trial when, when they're trying Jesus. He was going to destroy this temple. Jesus is going to literally be consumed by zeal for the house of the Lord. We could really even say there's one more layer to that, meaning there's zeal for your house will consume me. There's one more application you see, Jesus will ultimately be consumed not because of the anger of the religious leaders who were mad because he had disrupted their, their money making. They didn't have power. Even no matter how mad they were, they didn't have power uh, to take the life of Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What we need to recognize is ultimately not the anger of these people that brings about the crucifixion. It's actually the, the wrath of almighty God that was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross that leads to the crucifixion. You see, Jesus' display of, of righteous anger toward them in this moment right now and cleansing this temple, that was actually just a little foretaste of the wrath of God that Jesus Himself would endure on the cross. He died to bear the righteous anger of God for the sins of His people. That's what John says in 1 John, isn't it? That Jesus is the propitiating sacrifice for His people. Right? 
That's what a propitiating sacrifice is. It's, it's a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus is going to do. And that's what he points them to when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. When he's talking about the, them destroying the temple, John goes on to let us know that he's talking about his body. He's pointing them forward to the crucifixion. You destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it up. You crucify me and I will be resurrected. That's the final thing that we see this morning is that Jesus is predicting God's plan for renewing worship. They request a sign. Just the fact that they request a sign almost lets you in on the fact that they sort of suspect that Jesus might be onto something here. You know, maybe we shouldn't have been selling things in the temple. Maybe we shouldn't have made big business out of the worship of Almighty God. Maybe there was a problem. Why don't you give us a, a sign for that? But Jesus, Jesus does actually give them a sign. He doesn't give them the sign that they want. But he tells them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign that you will get. Of course, the Jews misunderstand. And we're going to see all through the Gospel of John. That's, that's the way that people, people who don't have faith can't understand the words of Jesus. There's this constant miscommunication and it's because they don't believe. He was talking about his body. So what, is, what do we make of this, this statement? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, Jesus is predicting his death. Verse 21 tells us. He's also predicting the fact that it will be the religious leaders who will, who will kill him. You destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And thirdly, he's predicting his resurrection. I will raise it up. The sign that he gives to them then, they're asking for a sign uh, to ultimately prove himself is, is the death and resurrection. They will kill him thinking that they've gotten rid of, of the problem, but he will rise again. And when he rises again, they will know that what he has said is true. And they will know that he truly is the one who had authority to do this action. We see the implication of this sign. We see here that Jesus is is saying, I'm the temple. When he says destroy this temple, he's referring to himself. He's pointing us to the fact that that he replaces the temple. Colin Cruz says this, he says, So now the temple of Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God is superseded by Christ himself. His body is the new temple, the place where God was now making himself present. What Jesus is showing them is that this broken temple system and he's going to get rid of that, and he's going to bring something much better. He's going to die, and, and by dying, he's going to atone for the sins of his people, including profane worship. And he will be raised the third day and, and replace the temple. After the resurrection, the temple will no longer be the focal point of, of worship. Jesus, and, and not a building with sacrifice, will become the focal point of worship. No longer will people go to Jerusalem. No longer will they go to a geographical location and think, this is where we go to worship God. From this point forward, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people will commune with God through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. It won't be about a geographical location. What we need to see in this text is that our worship, our worship is acceptable only 
through Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm the focal point of religion. If you want to worship God after the resurrection, you're going to come through me and not through a building and not through priest and not through a, a sacrificial system. You're going to come to God through me and through me alone. See, our, our takeaway from this lesson and, and from this passage cannot be that, that we are fundamentally better than the religious leaders of that day. Maybe that's what you've been thinking. Well, I'm glad we're not like them. That Acting as if we always have pure motives, as if our worship is always pure when we come to the Lord to worship Him. Neither can we apply this text merely by saying uh, that, that Jesus exposed their corrupt worship, so we need to try even harder to be sure our worship is pure. There, that is an application of that, but, but it can't be that alone. Certainly there is a reminder that we ought to seek to rid ourselves and our lives of sin and hypocrisy as we come to worship the Lord. But the reality this morning is this. The only remedy to this problem of defiled worship is the Gospel. That's, that's the only remedy just like the religious leaders in that day, we are guilty of taking our idols into our hearts and then coming to worship the Lord. Is there anyone who enters into worship today who came to church this morning having a spotlessly clean record even this morning? Uh, is there anybody that, that went through this week without any sin, uh, with, without any uh, worship of other idols in, in your heart? Is there anybody that can come to God and say, look, I'm so much better than all of those religious leaders. I am pure and clean 100%. I can worship you now. No, none of us can. What's the point of this text then? Well, it's the, the, the point of it is to point us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the point? Isn't that what he's saying here? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The, the point of all of it isn't to point back to ourselves and say, hey, get it together and be a better worshiper. Be a more pure worshiper. The point is to point us to, I'm using point a lot, but the point is to point us to Jesus Christ and, and to put him on display. His death and his resurrection is what enables us to enter into worship of God. And so we need to, to see that this morning. We, we need to recognize that it's only in Christ and through Him that we can enter into the presence of God and, and, and be accepted. Do we need to purify ourselves? Do we need to, to be concerned that, that we're not allowing hypocrisy into our lives? Do we need to seek to refine ourselves as we enter into worship? Absolutely. We need to, we need to pursue sanctification in our lives. Absolutely. But that cannot be the foundation of how we enter into, the wor into worship of God. The only foundation for worship of God is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his boldness, his zeal for the right worship of you. And God, we just come even this morning recognizing that uh, we are not pure. Uh, we come recognizing that as we enter into worship and to, to sing to you and to give offerings and to listen to your word, we, we don't come as, as people who have perfectly kept your law. God, if it was up to, to us, uh, the, the message of Isaiah would be the message that we hear as well, that you will turn your eyes away from us 
and that you would not listen to our prayers. Our only hope that you will see us and that you will hear us is your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that each one of us would cling to him. We thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.